The administrative office of the U.S. courts keeps the busy system of courts' dockets running. It has information technology underpinning this work, but the Government Accountability Office said the court lacks a strategic approach to improving its IT staff. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management, Carol Harris. Ms. Harris, good to have you back. Thank you. And I have to ask you, is this the first time the GAO has looked at the court system, the judiciary branch? I don't recall another report on this. Yeah, it's not the first time we've done work within the judiciary branch, but it certainly is the first that we've done taking a look at IT management within the judiciary branch. And the administrative office of the courts then is not a court, but it is the underpinning enabling organization for the courts throughout the country? That's right. So they serve as the central organization within the federal courts to provide IT services, which is why we focused on the administrative office. And I think the first time anyone ever saw a computer in a courtroom was the O.J. Simpson trial with Judge Ito and his laptop there. And at this point, the courts are pretty rich in IT, fair to say? I mean, do they have a pretty good base there? Oh, yes. They've come a long way since then. How many people work in IT for the court system? Right now, it's about 420 staff as of March 2022, and that comprises about one-third of AO's total staff. So that's a big percentage. Yeah, that's a huge percentage. For organizations that size, you know, we would expect to see somewhere between like 160 to maybe 200 folks, so about half of that. So when you point that out to the Judiciary Committee in Congress, the committees, they're going to probably question you on that one also. Most likely, but I think it speaks to the inefficiencies of of how IT is managed within the judiciary branch and why, again, it's so important to have that CIO in place to be able to identify those efficiencies that can cut across those departments. I mean, what is the major function of IT? Case management? So within the administrative office, I mean, they're broken down into three departments. And what's interesting, while they are the IT providers for the federal courts, their management of IT and their IT workforce is actually very highly decentralized. So within these three departments, they operate almost like autonomous shops where they have their own IT, they manage their own IT. So within their administrative services, they're the ones that are providing the IT systems that support their budgeting, accounting, HR, and procurement functions, sort of like the commodity IT. And then they've got program services, to your point, you know, that manage the judiciary's case management systems. They provide the support to the federal judges, clerks, the federal defenders, and so forth. And then the technology services department, which manage the IT infrastructure. And this decentralized nature, is it analogous to the way Congress, a lot of that work is decentralized because each member is kind of like its own little small business, even though there's a major. Would that be a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And let's talk more about the workforce. You found that they don't really follow the major good practices that you have previously identified for workforce management. That's right. So we focused on, yeah, their their IT workforce in particular, because this was our first foray into their IT management. Um, and what we found, we, you know, we focused on strategic planning, on recruitment and hiring, training development and performance management. And what we found was that within recruitment and hiring and training and development in particular, AO still has quite a, a long ways to go. While they identified, for example, that like cybersecurity skills gaps, you know, that, that's present there, they requested, in fact, $75 million for cyber-related salaries and expenses for FY22, which was about a 33% increase over the prior year. Well, they didn't report to management its progress in addressing those cyber skill gaps 
in their IT workforce. And, and in fact, they lacked metrics for monitoring how effective its recruiting and hiring efforts were at addressing those skill gaps. And so that was an issue. And also, as far as training and development, they had yet to perform any formal assessments of their staff IT training. So there was no way to tell if the courses were actually contributing to improved performance and results. But on the bright side, though, in terms of performance management, AO did substantially implement that area where they had mechanisms in place to provide regular performance feedback to their staff. All right, so a couple of questions. And by the way, we're speaking with Carol Harris. She's Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management at the GAO. My first question gets back to cybersecurity, and that is that must be a really big issue because in addition to the integrity of the court system itself, so much evidence nowadays that is held by the courts as part of trials is electronic evidence, you know, things gained Mm -hmm. from people's computers and logs and so forth. So I imagine a little bit of inattention to cyber could really affect court cases, ultimately. Absolutely, which is why when we looked at the IT workforce, it's so important for them to identify those skills gaps and have a comprehensive plans as to whether they have right-sized their staffing for the mission that they serve. And certainly with cybersecurity, it's great that they did identify that they had skills gaps But it's very important to have those metrics in place to ensure that they are effectively closing it, especially because of the sensitivity of the information that they hold. They want to make sure they have solid people there to adequately protect their systems. And when I look at the major IT workforce areas and I see that performance management, as you mentioned, is substantially implemented, but training and development, recruitment and hiring and strategic planning are only minimally or partially implemented, that means they're great with people once they get them, but they're not very good at the feedstock level. Yeah, so the feedback that they're providing their their staff are, you know, it's it's pretty robust. But certainly the training and development, when they're there, they need to do a better job there to ensure that their folks are properly trained and then also providing those metrics to ensure that the training that they are providing is actually serving the mission. And on recruitment and hiring with minimally implemented best practices there, that's kind of something they share with the administrative or the executive branch of government, and that is the whole outreach, recruitment, retention, hiring is a challenge. And I wonder if that could be because they're not working that hard at it, because they certainly have a compelling mission as much as any executive branch agency. Or do you think maybe it's because people look at the courts and see chaos nowadays just because of how long it takes to schedule things? And there's been some not so great court publicity lately. Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly have a compelling mission. I, I think the primary root cause that we've identified is that AO lacks a CIO who is responsible for the recruitment and the hiring of their IT workforce and managing that IT workforce. And that actually goes to our final finding within the report, which really you know, speaks to why they don't have a robust foundation in their IT workforce planning, as well as their IT project management. And it, it's because... They don't have a single person that's accountable for the performance of the IT investments that cut across the enterprise. And by the way, the head of the administrative office of the U.S. courts, who does that person report to? That's the director. The director reports to the judicial committee, and they are a group of federal judges that are responsible for making decisions about IT policy for the entire court system. So he reports to that committee. And that committee changes composition periodically? 
that's my understanding, yes. Yeah, well, that's a whole other area of study one of these days to see how the courts, how do they, you know, who runs that whole thing? How, it seems to be a self-sustaining amoeba-like mechanism. And now you have made a really long list of recommendations here. I don't recall too many we reports did. that have 18. What yes, are they basically did. driving at? So the 18 recommendations really identified improvements for addressing the gaps that we identified relative to the IT workforce, as well as in IT project management. Um, What we did was we looked at the three largest IT projects within the administrative office, and we found that, you know, for the most part, you know, they're doing a pretty good job in complying with supplier agreement management best practices but they only partially implemented the majority of project management best practices uh, related to, for example, cost estimating and schedule management. We did find that their cost estimates were not comprehensive and their schedules were just not well constructed. So we provided recommendations relative to those particular areas. But the most important one in my mind relates to the CIO and making a recommendation that they hire a CIO who is responsible for all of the IT within their organization. And does the Judiciary Committee here that runs this and with the CIO and the and the director of the administrative, where do they live? Are they like in the Supreme Court building or where does this whole apparatus physically live? The AO is outside of the Judicial Committee. And so, again, you know, they report to the Judiciary Committee. Um, the CIO would live within the AO and report to the director, and he or she would have purview over the, the three departments within AO to ensure that they are responsible for the IT investments as well as the IT workforce and have all of the responsibilities that a CIO would have within the executive branch. And I was just wondering where their office is. Is it in Washington somewhere? It's not like the basement of the Supreme Court building or anything. No, I don't believe so, but they are located in, in Washington. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. 
You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is 
brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time.
on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.